So Jonathan said to me, I forgot to bring a chant. And I said, I forgot to bring a chant. And we said, well, how about the word Alleluia or Hallelujah, which cuts across both of our traditions. Hallelujah is Hebrew and Alleluia is Greek. Exact same word. And Hallelujah means praise Yah. Praise so, Yah. So Yah being one of the names of God in the Bible. So when you say Hallelujah, praise the Lord, you're just translating Hallelujah. Just so you understand that. Okay. So just join in as you're ready. Alleluia, 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 alleluia. Our, uh, it's clear that we're making an arbitrary stopping point in our study together because each week that I learn opens up um, it's, it's, it's a geometric it's expansion of my interests and my questions and my that's great right and I hope we get to continue this yes yes, yes. yes. And, uh, but today, our goal, our heads are full of, full of all kinds of possible directions, but our goal is to discuss, at least introduce, both the narrative of the trial and crucifixion and the narrative of the resurrection. And uh, so that's where we're headed, and we'll see, we'll see where our path goes today. So I want to hand it over to Matthew. So we thought we would continue following the model that we were working with last week where we're using Mark as our primary narrative text and then we can bring in insights from Luke or John or Matthew or Paul but using Mark as our, as our sort of bedrock. And so what we've done, we've just uh, followed with this new handout off of the last one. We picked up where we left off and we ended last week with that scene called The Last Supper. Um, the final meal Jesus and his students share together before he's arrested, and then we'll go through the, the events following. Um, and so 
I'll just read again the text from Mark. I have it, um, the main uh, chunk of it here, what Christian tradition calls the words of institution. Um, because after the fact, we look back at this and Christians say, well, Jesus is instituting the practice of Holy Communion or of Holy Eucharist. Um, so they're retroactively called the words of institution. But of course here it's just the words at table with his students this night. And Mark has it this way. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And while they were eating, we've been told that this is um, uh, the, the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this is Passover. Uh, while they were eating, he took a loaf of bread. And I, I saw in the Willis Barnstone translation, he renders it, he took the matzot. Uh, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will never drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So this is Mark's recounting of these words. Um, and, and in the narrative, they sort of come out of, out, of, out of the blue, out of left field. Jesus, throughout the whole narrative of Mark's gospel, hasn't been talking about body or blood or covenant, this covenant language. All this is like, where's this coming from? Um, we'll see in the later gospels, in John's gospel, this language gets projected back throughout his ministry. And he's saying things like this from the beginning. But here in Mark's narrative, this is the first time this kind of language shows up at all. And we have an earlier account of this in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So Paul's writing in the 50s or 60s. Mark is writing around 70 or so. So I've copied here, just for comparison's sake, um, the earlier account from Paul who says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance, or to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Um, so we have these two accounts, and it's interesting, in the other accounts as well, we have one in Matthew, and in John there's actually no account of this meal at all. There's the account of their gathering, no description of the meal, and instead there's what's called the, the foot washing, and Jesus washes his students' feet in John's text. Um, the order gets flipped between some of the texts. In one of the texts, um, the bread comes first, the wine comes second, and in another, the wine comes first and the bread comes second. And there's slight little differences in the way it's phrased. So we saw, see in Mark here, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. No reference to anything new here. Um, and in Corinthians, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So there's just slightly different um, traditions in the way these words are transmitted. But they're transmitted in Paul and in three of the Gospels, that something along these lines took place at the table. And uh, we started touching on last week how kind of weird and shocking this can be, um, especially the blood language for Jewish ears. Uh, interestingly, in both uh, Corinthians and in Luke, it's worded in such a way that he doesn't explicitly say that the cup is the blood. 
He says the cup is the covenant that's in my blood. Um, he says the same in, in Luke's rendering of this. Uh, he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. <laughs> so there's just a slight, like, a little slight, you know, um, uh, removed from directly saying it's blood. And in Mark's version, he kind of pulls a fast one on them. And the other ones, he says, drink this. This is my blood. And Mark, he has them drink it. And then he says, by the way. <laughs> um, but I wonder if, Jonathan, if you want to weigh in on this language, which sort of is, and it's, it is surprising language, which makes me think, well, maybe Jesus said something like this because he likes to do things that are shocking and use images in shocking ways. Um, but Right. It's, we don't know what's historical and what is um, sacred lore that emerges to talk about this remarkable person that, that wa- walked the earth, right? And so um, I'm actually influenced today by a book that uh, um, Matthew suggested I read called, and I recommend it, called Jesus, a Revolutionary Biography. John Dominic Crossan. That's, that's this book. I haven't finished it yet. I started at the end. And he went backwards. Chapter I'm going chapter. backwards. because He read it Hebrew style. That's right. I read the end because I wanted to read about his take on the crucifixion and the resurrection. I said, this is amazing. And then I said, what happened in the last chapter? So uh, it's right up here if you want to write it down later. Uh, <clears throat> he takes a fairly um, extreme towards we can't most of this is not history that most of it is um, stories that get created in the aftermath of Jesus's death and crucifixion Uh, so that just in terms of historicity um, there's how would we know about this private dinner furthermore for example were there 12 apostles did (laughs) Because 12 is such a profoundly symbolic number, uh, both in the Jewish tradition and in the wider world, because of the 12 signs of the zodiac. Uh, the 12 tribes of Israel are modeled on that as well, 12 being the, uh, a, real, a real complete number. So given that Jesus is modeling a new Israel, the, the followers of Jesus are seeing themselves as a new Israel, they would potentially organize their story about Jesus to represent the 12 tribes in a new fashion. All of that's possible. And it's possible Jesus organized his followers in a way to represent that symbolism. It's possible that Jesus did that with his followers, except that it's not clear, um, because it seems, it, it, it seems clear from the texts we have that Jesus included women in his circle of followers, in a way that was, from what I'm understanding about the stories of Jesus, he was a boundary breaker, right? He wanted to show that the typical boundaries of who you can eat with, who gets to sit at the table, who gets to, uh, who gets to serve and who gets to lead. Jesus was a radical, it appears, in that way. 
uh, from the stories about him and the communal meals he shared. So I just wanted to reflect that we don't know about the historicity of this Last Supper or whether Jesus said, this is, take this, and this represents the blood, take this, this is my body. Um, uh, in, and because it does come out of the blue, in a way. And the, the symbolism of the 12, it, it shows up the first time that there's a reference to 12 is in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And he says that, um, I pass on to you what I received, that Jesus first appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the 12. Now, the gospel texts have Peter as a member of the 12, um, and Paul seems to reference the 12 as a separate group. There's a question Paul writing in the 50s or 60s, is the 12 a group of leadership that emerged after all of these events and that then gets read backwards into the text? Um, or is the 12 something Jesus would have formed? And, and a lot of the early layers, like the Q source material or the Gospel of Thomas, there's just reference to disciples, some of them men, some of them women. Um, and so does the 12 emerge later? And then, and then because now they're known as the 12, we read them backwards as the 12. Who knows? Um, it's clearly a sim symbolic number, though, either way. And, I wanna, uh, and so I want to add that uh, the question of whether Jesus proposed uh, the historical Jesus, which, again, is something that we're just trying to tease out and don't know also, uh, proposed a new covenant that would supersede the covenant of Moses is not at all clear from Jesus' sayings and teachings. He's not, he doesn't seem to be proposing to create a new religion that will transcend the boundaries of the Jewish covenant. He seems to always be preaching to fellow Jews. That's, I think that's a reasonable assumption. So that's for me why I think that the uh, idea of Jesus saying this is a new covenant would be a retrojection from, from Paul 20 years later who is ministering to the Gentiles, right? Because the mission of the apostles has expanded and they are taking it out beyond the boundaries of the Jewish covenant. So, so I guess that's what I want to say about it is that this is clearly a foundational Christian text. I mean, this is it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is how you partake in the body of the new covenant. Uh, but uh, I, would, it, I would say that that is not something that Jesus said. And, and one of the arguments Which doesn't make, it, doesn't make it bad or wrong. Uh, it's not what I'm trying to say. One of the arguments around Paul's um, recounting of the meal um, comes from a, a Lutheran liturgical scholar named Gordon Lathrop. And he says that Jesus says, I received from the Lord, that would be for him the Lord Jesus, what I also handed on to you. But we know that Paul never met Jesus in the flesh, in the body. Um, Paul's encounters with Jesus are uh, a visionary experience that we learn about later in the text. So Lathrop argues that when Paul says, I received from the Lord, Paul's describing a visionary experience he had about regarding the meaning of the final meal Jesus shared with his disciples. Paul so, has a lot of visions. Yeah, and so, so no, the I, argument... I say that negatively. Yeah, either. yeah. The argument from Lathrop then is that this is Paul's visionary seeing of, of, the, of the symbolic meaning of this meal. 
And so it may not be a, an historical memory of ha- what happened, but Paul's visionary interpretation of its meaning that he's passing on when he says, I receive from the Lord. Because um, he doesn't say, I received this from Peter, or I received it from James and John. Um, so that's one argument. And, and Lathrop says he thinks Paul got it right, that this is the deep inner meaning, but that perhaps it's not an historical um, memory. Um, you could argue this either way. And <clears throat> yeah, just a reminder, if you do have a device um, to put them on silence. Um, but the imagery, it comes totally out of the Hebrew Bible. And if we take this back to the story of Moses, we can see Jesus playing with imagery that shows up there. Um, Which part of Moses? The well, So he sprinkles the blood on the people and oh, they share right. a meal. Oh, thanks for reminding me. Okay. What is this sacred meal? Uh, yes, Ronnie. Yes. Uh, were the symbols of blood and body, I mean, those expressions, were they used or did he just make it up? It sounds gory. <laughs> yes, it does, doesn't it? Yes. And, and Jewish temple sacrifice was, was bloody. Yeah. yeah. So this sacrifice is Jewish in the... Jewish worship was very bloody in that sense. Yes. Yeah. If you are a follower of Jesus, Again, this is historical sort of surmising. And your inspiring leader, truly inspiring, truly a boundary crosser, a healer, a prophet, is unceremoniously picked up by the Roman authorities and crucified because he's making trouble during the Passover festival. You then have to make sense of his death, right? If his presence, to put it in the most, in, and, and I mean this in the most positive way, if his presence is still meaningfully alive to you, um, then, and he's been crucified, because again, I would lean towards the stories in the Gospels about the crucifixion, the trial, all of that, being later interpretations of what was probably a summary execution. You have to understand that crucifixion, and again, this is all stuff I'm learning from history books right now, I'm not an expert, uh, was an incredibly common form of Roman execution for troublemakers, for rebels, for, uh, I mean, so common, or, uh, so common, along with throwing people to the lions and other ways of essentially, and we're talking about body here, actually, though I haven't thought deeply about this, um, uh, where your body is completely torn to shreds, right? If you are crucified, you are left as carrion, hanging on the cross or put down on the, on the ground. Uh, the fact that Jesus has a, a, a burial is remarkable based on other accounts of what happened to crucified victims of the Romans. Okay, so Jesus, your leader, has now died. Uh, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's, horrible. it's utterly gruesome. It's, it's like lynchings. Think about how horrible lynchings were all over the South as a form of state-sponsored terrorism and public spectacle where black victims were accused of crimes they didn't commit and then mostly men hung by, by tr- and tortured and then hung in a tree with thousands of people cheering. Okay? That was lynching. So... You know, execution as public spectacle is part of part of the human. Uh, let me just play this out, and then I'll take people's questions. Oh, oh do you want to gesture him over here? Come on over here. 
<laughs> Here are your friends. <laughs> Don't lose that train of thought. You were on a roll. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, so, what was the last thing I said? <laughs> what was the last thing I said? Um, there's been this lynching and... Oh, right, and right. Okay, public execution. State-sponsored okay. so, terrorism. So, historically, a reasonable surmise is that none of this stuff around the trial and uh, happened. It's all later stories about Jesus' followers making sense of the fact that their, 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 their utter inspiration has been killed, right? Um, so uh, I found that to be very, very, uh, very helpful to consider. Again, the fact that these are not necessarily historical accounts doesn't make them less meaningful accounts. But... Um, uh, I think I'm persuaded, again, by, by the last author I just read, because that's how it goes, right? Um, if they're really persuasive, that uh, these are probably retrojections starting to tell the story of what Jesus' life meant to them. So for Paul to say, if, if Paul says, I received this from the Lord, that, that on that final night he took the bread and said, this is my body given for you, and this is after the fact. Jesus' body has been given. His blood has been poured out. And then for Paul to say, that I receive from the Lord that the meaning of that, he's giving himself for us. He's pouring his blood out for us. So that's, um, that's one way of, of understanding that. The other is potentially that Jesus saw what's coming, which was very likely the way Dr. King saw what was coming. Um, and, and he gave them this ritual um, saying, I'm giving myself for you. Um, you go and do likewise. Give yourself for the world. And uh, that's another way of hearing these words. You know, this is my body broken and given for you. Now go and give your body. Do, he says, do this to remember me. Go and give yourself um, to keep me alive. This is my life poured out for you. Go pour your life out um, to, to, to remember me, to keep me alive. I, and, I'm so glad you said that because either is plausible, right? Um, and and um, the language remembrance that Jesus uses here in biblical languages to, to and also in the Greek thought world to remember something it's not just a cognitive act I'm thinking about it in my head to remember is to make present to make alive here and now it's to put yourself to back, put together. back together you've been dismembered and we're doing this to remember you um, and so Jesus says do this to remember me uh, to make wow. me present again when I'm gone and what does he say to do to remember me gather at table and break bread and share wine to remember me to make my body and my life present um, which is consistent with what Jesus does throughout his whole ministry his ministry is based around open table fellowship and so if he's gonna say once I'm gone hey Rome is about to kill me once I'm gone how do you remember me you keep the table fellowship going. You keep the table open. You keep breaking bread. You keep drinking wine. You keep this going. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's something beautiful, too, in saying, <clears throat> taking bread and saying, this is, this is my body. Like this, you know, this bread. Um, it's such a, a beautiful sort of humble, grounded imagery. Like, where do we look for you? In the broken bread at the table. That's where you'll find me. That's how you'll remember me. 
Now, I, I know people want to say things, but I want to keep this going for a little while. Um, uh, so, if, so that table fellowship, if, if, if now Matthew, Luke, uh, and Mark are all writing, but Mark is writing at the, after the destruction of the temple and the sacrificial cult, I use the word cult with a small c because that's how it's always referred to, the, the organization of how people brought sacrifices to the temple in order to be reunited with God. And the blood was spilled on the ground and the meat was, uh, and the flesh was eaten. And this was the reality and the metaphor for how to be close to God in ancient Israel. Now, either before the temple has been destroyed or after, that's your metaphor. So naturally... Jesus becomes the sacrifice for you that allows you to be in covenant with God. That's what the sacrifices did. If you were cut off from God, you could repent by bringing a sacrifice, an offering. And in that offering of blood and flesh uh, of the sacrificial animal, the perfect, unblemished sacrificial animal, you would be reunited, reintegrated into the body of Israel. Okay, I'm using those terms importantly because we talk about the body of Christ, right? This is about being integrated into this body. So the imagery of sacrifice is very much present. And uh, the rabbis, in the wake of the destruction of the temple, create a home ritual. It's the Sabbath table. And it's explicit. At the Sabbath table, we eat the bread, the loaves the special loaves that were also produced and put on the, as they're called the showbread in the ancient temple. And we drink the wine. And explicitly, our table ritual in Judaism is called mikdash me'at, which means a micro temple. A mini temple. A mini temple. In the absence of the temple, we are supposed to recreate the temple at our Sabbath table. So all of this, again, is in a context that we can make some sense of. That's what I wanted to share. And this is what the Christian tradition does. Both traditions are having to deal with, by the time Mark is writing, the absence of the temple. And in the Christian tradition, they took the temple altar into their churches and shared this meal around a table. And this became the replacement sacrifice. So both traditions develop an unbloody sacrifice. How do we keep the sacrifices going now that That's we right. can't offer sacrifices? And in both traditions, it's, it's the table. It's what happens at the table, and it's bread and wine. So we continued this ritual in very similar ways, imbuing it with you know, different resonances of, of meaning. But we see that everyone at this period had the same sets of metaphors and images to work with. And so it's the most natural thing in the world well, how do we make sense of the death of our rabbi? And these are Jewish people. You have the temple sacrifice metaphor at hand. Well, he's the perfect sacrifice that ends all sacrifice. That's just a metaphor that's right there that's so rich with meaning. Um, and the Jesus story is constantly uh, echoing the images from the Abraham Isaac story. And you know some scholars will say that what's being recounted beneath the surface of that story is the transition um, from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice. 
And we know that in you know, pre-Israelite religion, human sacrifice and the sacrifice of children, we have recounted in the scriptures that those who sacrificed children, their firstborn to the god Moloch and the fires. So in the story of the sacrifice or almost sacrifice of Isaac, um, some scholars say that we're, what we're seeing, he goes to sacrifice the child, God stays his hand and provides the ram. And this is symbolically recounting the cultural memory of the transition from the days back when we sacrificed children to now we don't do that anymore. And so the metaphor then gets picked up by the Christian tradition and says, okay, the death of Jesus, now it's symbolically the transition from sacrifice to no sacrifice at all. It's sort of put an end to the whole system. Um, now, today, if we try to take those metaphors, which were beautiful first century Jewish metaphors, literally, we end up with horrible theology. That there's a God who required the human sacrifice of Jesus in order to take away our sins. You know, and and um, Dominic Crossan says that kind of theology amounts to essentially cosmic child abuse. That you know, God requires the death of um, God's son. Um, but if we don't take it literally that there's a God demanding blood payment and we see it metaphorically that these are Jews working with Jewish temple images and metaphors to interpret the death of their rabbi, well, that opens up a whole beautiful world of meaning. Um, now, let me take that in two directions. One is that if his followers, we haven't talked much about uh, the apocalyptic, which meant people thinking that the, the end of the world was coming in the first century. Uh, any time, right? And they might also have interpreted Jesus' death as uh, another sign that a whole, new, a whole new creation was about to emerge uh, that where, the, you know, in the vision of Isaiah where the lion would lie down with the lamb. And we haven't spoken much about apocalypticism because uh, it's so alien to my... Um, Thought world, to our modern worldview, right? It's so alien that I have, I have, I have trouble wrapping my mind around it. But uh, so I can't say much. I was thinking about that as I was reading. It's like I'm not telling that story because it's like it really makes no sense to me. <laughs> um, and but it's something that maybe in a future class, in a future class, future it would be classes, fun to look we at need first to look at apocalyptic. Yeah. Were they? What was the? What was this end of history as that they were awaiting? But I just want to put that aside because. I'm not equipped to talk about it yet. I have to do a lot more study myself. Um, but the other direction I want to take it in is listen to this passage from the book of Exodus. Uh, so they have just received the Ten Commandments, and now there's going to be a ceremony to, to um, seal the covenant. Okay? Chapter 24 of Exodus. This is, so they've received the Ten Commandments. Moses has... Uh, he, he hasn't brought the tablets down uh, yet, but the timeline isn't clear in Exodus anyway. But, okay. Um, then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and bow low from afar. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall come near, nor shall the people come up with him. So, Moses, Aaron, his sons, and the elders are invited to go up the mountain. Uh, uh, early in the morning, Moses set up an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He designated some young men among the Israelites, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls 
as offerings of well-being to the Lord. Moses took one part of the blood and put it in basins, and the other part of the blood he dashed against the altar. Then he took the record of the covenant and read it aloud to the people, the sefer, the scroll, the tablet. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will faithfully do. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people. Or sprinkled, that's often translated. Oh, right, right. The Hebrew word is uh, yizrok. Yeah, tossed, uh, dashed, sprinkled. Saying, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord now makes with you concerning these commandments. It gets, it gets better, listen. And then remember, Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. And here is, this is the blood of the covenant. So uh, this is language from the tradition. Right. Then Moses and Aaron, the David of Ehu, and 70 elders of Israel ascended. And they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was the likeness of a pavement of sapphire, like the very sky for purity. What's going on? <laughs> this is, they see, this is when you can't see me and live. Well, they, they see the God They're of Israel. In a visionary state. Some, they behold, they, they have a vision. Yet God did not raise his hand against the Israel, leaders of elders of the Israelites. They beheld God and they ate and drank. Oh my goodness. So come on. <laughs> you, follow, you, you follow what I'm saying? Uh, whether Jesus is self-consciously patterning himself on this passage from Exodus, or whether his followers, in the classic way that Jews will look into our sacred texts for validation and proof of our, you know, are doing this, this Last Supper is a reflection of this astonishing covenantal ceremony in the book of Exodus. Um, and then that image get, imagery gets picked up in the letter to the Hebrews. It talks about the followers of Jesus being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And the way here, they were sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. And of course, they weren't literally being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. It's, it's a metaphor um, for the participation in this, this covenantal relationship. Um, so the Last Supper imagery, we could go on and on about it, but this is, you know, it's, it's there on the last night, and it has become central to Christian worship ever since. It's the central act of worship is to share bread and wine as a sign of the covenant. So we do this every single week, and I think that you all also share we bread do. and wine. We <laughs> share bread and wine. Anyone who's observant every week sits down at the Sabbath table to share bread and wine and remember the covenant and the creation. So these are the ways we continue the tradition. These are the ways, and there is no longer a temple, but we keep sharing the meal, the sacred meal. Um, so this is the last act um, of Jesus with the disciples. And then he says, let us go out uh, to pray. And they go to Gethsemane. And he... Which is a Hebrew name, Gethsemane, which means an oil press. Just so you know. Yeah, olive oil press. Yeah, right. So they go and he begins praying in the garden. And in, in Mark's rendition of it, he prays, Abba, God... If, if, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Don't let me be arrested and crucified by Rome. If it's possible, if there's an escape, let me out of this. And then he says, but not your will, uh, not my will, but your will be done. And as the story goes, um, he's betrayed. Uh, the police come, they arrest him, they take him away. 
and we pick up in the text you have in your packet here um, the following morning. So he's been arrested in the middle of the night, and we're told as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. I think it's, we're not going to study that betrayal scene, but uh, it's worth mentioning that a, a, um, an, a, a, a disciple named Judas Iscariot, who some say Iscariot comes from Sicari, which means um, they were zealots, or Sicari means dagger men. So um, it's questioned, Judas, does he symbolize, or was he a part of the, the movements of violent revolution um, before joining this movement of Jesus, or, or there are other theories. Or later, him. is he the Jew? When, once, once, the Christi- once Christianity uh, you know, starts to separate itself from Judaism, is Judas simply the Jew who betrays Jesus? You know? So that's why, again, I don't think these are historical names. Uh, Judas Iscariot, the Sicarii, we'll talk more about them. Yeah. Uh, they, were the, they, were the, they were the militant rebels who, uh, who refused to make a deal with Rome during the siege of Jerusalem. So, so that is one question that some scholars have raised is, is again, Judah, Judas, Judah is his yeah, name. Yeah, Judas is the is, of Judah. Is he, um, again, a literary device who's you know, symbolic of the betrayal, or is he an historical figure? But um, some scholars have seen sort of a creeping early anti-Semitism there and having Judah being the one who betrays him. Um, so we could go into that, but we're not no, going to go into that betrayal scene. Um, one way or another, he's arrested. And, um, and so the council, uh, the temple council, the, the high priests, the elders, hold a council. And we're told they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So they're handing him over to the Roman government. Um, and we, we've looked at the way... The high priest um, and, and those in the temple at this point were collaborators with Rome. They really worked at the behest of Rome and were appointed by Rome. It's the only way they kept... Yes, they were, they, were, they were between a rock and a hard place. They also enjoyed privilege, and they had to keep their people in line because they, not only did they enjoy their privilege, but they also knew that Rome would crush their city if they got too far out of line. So it makes sense they don't want to see a Jewish rebellion, revolt, or uprising because they want to keep, they want to keep peace um, because they don't want Rome coming in and, and, and squashing things. So it's to their advantage if a person among the Jewish population is moving towards revolt, rebellion, um, upsetting the social order to quiet them, to silence them. Um, so they get them, they hand them over to Rome, and we're told... Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered, you say so. Then the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate asked him again, have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. So he's just silent through this, and he, he won't answer questions. He just gives non-answers. Uh, he just sort of stays in this uh, enigmatic space. And... Um, and then we're told at the festival, Pilate used to release a prisoner for them, anyone for whom they asked. And this is where we're getting into historically questionable territory. Um, there's no record that says the, the governor had a tradition of releasing any prisoner they wanted. 
It doesn't even make much sense. You're going to let the people have any prisoner they want? Like, these prisoners are threats to, to the system, and, oh, just pick one, we'll release them. So uh, Pilate was pretty violent, pretty, um, you know, uncaring. And so the thought that he just, you know, would release someone every year, it's thought that maybe this is, well, we'll see what is going on here, what this device is. But I just want to add that there are external historical attributions of Pontius Pilate. In other words, he was a person, as far as we can tell, a real person. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, even his grave, I believe, has been, uh, un was located. And um, uh, we know about how he, uh, according to Josephus, and uh, how, how he treated previous rebellious uprisings in, under his watch. Crushed. Crushed them mercilessly. The idea of him saying, well, tell me what you think, <laughs> is unlikely. Um, and also the scene of Jesus before Pilate. He's in the inner chambers with Pilate. There's no one there to report what happened in this interaction. So again, it's thought that this is probably an imagined interaction. You know, there were no witnesses to that exchange. So this is a teaching story. It's supposed to teach us something. That's what we need to look for, which is what we consider the entire Bible to be, right? We're... It's very important to me to tease out what we can know historically, but then we've got to always come back to the purpose of these books is to teach us something. Now, a man called Bar-Abbas, which literally means Bar-Son, Abbas, Father, the son of the Father, is this a symbolic name? What is this name? Was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. So this tells us that he is a violent revolutionary. So we're getting two different images here. Jesus, who was a nonviolent revolutionary, and Barabbas, who was a violent revolutionary, and we're, we're juxtaposing the two of them. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to his custom. Then he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews, i.e., Jesus? Uh, for he realized it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas for them instead. Sp Pilate spoke to them again. Then what do you wish me to do to the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. So we see here the people in this story, they're choosing the violent revolutionary over the nonviolent revolutionary, which is what we know historically after the fact happens. Um, do you want to... So in Jerusalem, in the rebe rebellion against Rome, we know that there were many factions within the Jews who lived within Jerusalem. Uh, there were the Pharisees who wanted to accommodate Rome. Um, there were uh, uh, presumably some followers of Jesus. And there were the, the priestly caste who had their own interests. And there were what get called the Zealots uh, or the Sicarii who were militant and were not <coughs> going to make a deal even if it meant the destruction and death. And raging in Judea and in the Galilee and within Jerusalem during that time, it was a Jewish civil war as well. There was not a unified Jewish body politic. It was a civil war uh, because it's so understandable. Think about any people fighting for their lives, desperate to get under the thumb of Rome but how you do it? What, when you're an oppressed people, it's like you know, 
in our dreams, an oppressed people all stays unified. Look what happened to King's movement by, by you know, after the Voting Rights Act. It started to splinter between those who, who were espousing black power and those who wanted to keep following King. And so it's like, we understand this dynamic. So historically, Jerusalem was in, the Jewish population was in deep turmoil and conflict. And we know this both from Josephus and from the rabbinic texts. Um, and it was the violent uprisings that eventually led to the destruction of the temple. Right. The fact that the zealots took hold of Jerusalem, would not let anyone in or out, was what led to the siege and what ultimately led to the Romans deciding they had to breach the walls and destroy the temple after a three-year siege. This is in the year 66 to the year 70. This is the rebellion against Rome. And so, uh, not, so if you imagine Mark, let, let's imagine that Mark is writing after the destruction or in the wake of this destruction. Bar Abbas might be a symbolic character because he's identified as uh, among the rebels who committed murder during the insurrection. Right, who are known as the Sicari or the knife wielders, the dagger wielders. Um, uh, it, it may be a symbolic statement of which path to follow because the rabbis do the same thing. Um, and I'll share with you a, a, the, one of the most famous rabbinic stories. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was the leader in the year 70 of the rabbinic faction, Right, um, and has some amazingly wonderful wisdom sayings in his, in his name. He's in Jerusalem. When he went out into the marketplace and saw men of Jerusalem stewing straw and drinking its water, because they're starving in Jerusalem, he said to himself, can men who are reduced to cooking straw withstand Vespasian's troops? Matters cannot be remedied unless I go out of the city and attempt to make peace with the Romans. Now, Abba Sikara, which means the chief of the Sikari, head of the zealots in Jerusalem, happened to be the son of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's sister. I like this detail. <laughs> His nephew. Rabbi Yochanan sent word to him, come visit me in secret. When Abba Sikara came, Rabbi Yochanan asked him, how long will you men continue what you are doing? You're killing all the people by famine. Abba Sakara replied, what choice have I? If I dare to object to them, they'll kill me. Rabbi Yochanan said, well, devise a scheme for me to leave the city. Perhaps the saving of a few lives may still be possible. Now, we don't know if this is an historical dialogue either. Right? This, may, this is, I would say, most likely this is the rabbis telling their story about what happened. Uh, we, Abba Sakara said, well, we've agreed among ourselves that no man may leave the city except as a corpse. Rabbi Yochanan, then have me taken out as the corpse. And Abba Sakara said, okay, pretend to be ill, let everyone come to visit you, have something foul-smelling brought and put at your side so that it'll say, Rabbi Yochanan is dead. Then let your disciples come and carry the casket with you in it. Make sure that others are not allowed to carry it so that your body's light weight will not be noticed. It is well known that a living body weighs less than a corpse. That's an old thing because of your, your What is your soul weigh? Yeah. Um, Rabbi Yochanan acted on Abba Sakara's advice, and they put the scheme in, and they carried the coffin until they reached Vespasian, the Roman emperor. When they opened the coffin, Rabbi Yochanan stood up before him and said, Peace to you, O king. Okay, so this is the story. Rabbi, Rabbi um, uh, Vespasian says, What do you need? What do you want? He says, Just give me Yavne. Now that's like 
in Jewish world, you know what that means. I mean, give me a place where we can continue to practice the Torah, and I'll give you Jerusalem. Right? This is the rabbis retrojecting uh, their, their solution to the destruction of the temple, that we're going to keep the Torah alive in the absence of the temple. And I read you, the story goes on, it's a long story. I read it to you because I'm fascinated that Rabbi Yochanan also has to be dead and then reborn out of this coffin. I'm fascinated by that. Um, uh, and I don't have more to say about it, except that it's a motif that it seems is told in one tradition genre and here in another. Um, so that's all to describe to you um, who Bar Abbas might represent in this story. Uh, whether it's a dialogue here or whether it's a dialogue between the chief of the zealots and his uncle, Yochanan, inside the uh, besieged Jerusalem. And the rabbis are different than the priests. Just everybody knows, gets that, right? Right. Some, rabbi, some priests are rabbis and some rabbis are priests. And rabbis supported the priestly... But they're that... But rabbis are... Thing and who they are, mm -hmm. they're saying, am I right? That they're saying, okay, we're not doing the right. sacrifices, we're going to keep the Torah alive. By right, so the rabbis emerge from the destruction as one of the Jewish sects still standing. Right? The priestly cult, the Sadducees, have lost their power base, they've lost everything. So they're still a respected part of the community, but they have no authority anymore. And only, and the rabbis slowly, over a period of centuries, become the authoritative voice of this new Judaism. Another authoritative voice of a new expression of Judaism is the church, right? It's, a di it's very different paths, but they are both radically revised responses in the wake of the destruction of the center of their spiritual, religious, and political life. So we have in this scene, whether we understand it as an historical scene or not, the scene is showing us two paths, two ways. Do you choose the way of nonviolence or do you choose the way of violent revolution? And the text tells us and the people chose the way of violence, which is what we do again and again as a human family. We choose the way of violence. And so it's sort of like, I, I set before you, you know, <laughs> blessings and curses. I set before you life and death. Um, and so symbolically here, the people are choosing the way of Barabbas as opposed to the way of, of Jesus. Now, what I want to point out, and then you see there's an addition here from Matthew. I want to see the way this text continues to get embellished down through the decades. So here we see that this is really um, one that the chief priests, we can't really say they're the villains in the story. They're trying to do what from their perspective is best for the people. If, if we don't silence this guy, there could be revolt and rebellion and even more people are gonna die. So they're trying to do what seems to be in the best interest, right? Um, but the text makes it clear that this is a small consultation of chief priests in um, collaboration with Roman leadership. Now, I want you to see in Matthew's gospel what happens. Here's a gospel written now a decade or so after Mark's, and he inserts a verse, he uses Mark's narrative, and then inserts, um, after the verse in Mark 14, this verse, 
So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So this is an addition into the text that's not in Mark's original telling. And we see the texts are beginning to shift blame in a way, right? The blame is coming off of this small religious elite, and it's being shifted to the people as a whole. Mm -hmm. Now, when Matthew is doing this, the traditions haven't fully separated yet. Um, and, And Matthew is working in a time now a decade after the temple's destroyed, And the big question for Jews and Christians is, why did God allow the destruction of the temple? And so one of the answers that the rabbis gave as well was that, well, it's our fault. We weren't weren't holy enough. We weren't pure enough. We weren't observant enough. And so God allowed this punishment, allowed this destruction of the temple. So the Christians, one of their answers is, this must have befallen us all because we allowed Jesus to be killed. And so the blame is shifted to the people. Um, At this point, the people aren't separated. But you see what happens. Then when Christians separate from Jews, the blame is shifted to the Jews, those people. And so we see over the evolution of these texts shift from the officials to the people to those people. Right. As Matthew said, uh, uh, when the Christians may have started writing like this, they were still a minority within a minority of, you know, a Jewish sect within the larger Jewish people who, and they had been, they were being um, uh, rejected in many cases by the other Jews who said that, who weren't going to follow the way of Jesus. So the rabbis, but then later, in centuries later, when the Christians find themselves with the power of empire. And then they read this text. The Jews are in big trouble. Um, I want to I want to add that the there were many many rationales like people say why did this happen to me right and if you and so the rap the, the, the rabbinic literature has many different stories it happened because of of, of uh, uh, the rebellion happened because of this or because there's a lot of great stories it's worth a whole class on itself but the one that rises to the top again over the centuries is this one um, we know why the first temple was destroyed, the first temple in the Babylonian period. Solomon's temple. Because of the three evils in it, idolatry, immorality, and bloodshed. We know this because if you read the Book of Kings, they're constant. it's right there. But why was the second temple destroyed? Seeing that we had stopped uh, practicing idolatry and we were practicing the, the mitzvot and, the ch- and charity. Because during the time it stood, hatred without rightful cause prevailed or gratuitous hatred. This is to teach you that hatred without rightful cause is deemed as grave as all the three sins of idolatry, immorality, and bloodshed together. So that's what I grew up learning. The temple is destroyed because we uh, of, of our baseless hatred of one another. That's a good reason. We can watch a lot of things get destroyed because of that, right? So, Amy? My earliest remembrance of uh, uh, catechism class was being told. Be louder, please. I will repeat what she says. We'll repeat it, My earliest remembrance of catechism class as a child was. In in, um, in what tradition? Oh, in, in Catholicism. Okay. okay, I was raised as a Catholic. Um, 
was that our that each individual our bodies are our temple. Mm. Now this is this is something I remember that really much, and I remembered all the, the instructions of all the temples, you know. And so I'm like thinking, and so my what what I was told was that it was up to us to keep our temple pure. Now this is blowing me away because it's like, all right, so. I got lost in that in my early childhood. It was like my problem with Catholicism was I would you would be taught things and then never expounded on anything. So it's like, so when are we all supposed to know that we're all the body, the, the you know, the one body? So it's like, you know, when? So Can you summarize? What she so, so she's saying that she grew up Roman Catholic, and in catechism she was taught that the human body was the temple of God, right. um, but that there wasn't much development of that further. Right, and that we, but it was up to us individually to keep our temple pure. Right, and it was turned into a very kind of moralistic purity, like right. keep your temple pure, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then now, but with all the Ten Commandments, this is how we're supposed to do it. But why isn't everybody doing it? That was my question. It's like, like wait a minute. <laughs> and, and so we see this in the, in the Christian tradition. The, this is the language that develops. And St. Paul uses this language. He says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, of the Ruach HaKodesh. That, that if there's no temple, well, you are the temple. Um, Hillel, there are stories about Hillel that he says the same thing. So we see here the beginning of those those seeds that become, this becomes eventually a text of terror um, as the traditions grow apart. Um, and again, we could spend classes and classes and classes on that history, but we'll keep moving through the narrative here and we move on to um, the scourging and crucifixion of Jesus. And, and again, scholars will often say to us that none of this would have been seen or known. Like what really likely would have happened the Romans took him as a criminal, and after that, no one saw what happened. The Romans took people, and they went and Stole they beat him up, up, and they killed him. And the next thing you knew, you saw their, their corpse hanging on, on the side of the road. And so a lot of these details, we can imagine the Christians begin filling in the scene using the language and imagery of Scripture. Um, what happened to Jesus in those, in those days? And so they go back and pour over the Scriptures... Um, to, to fill in the details. And we'll see that almost everything that happens in this next scene is drawn from the Psalms. Mm -hmm. So we're told that the soldiers led him into the courtyard of the palace. They clothed him in a purple cloak. After twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on him. They began saluting him. Hail, King of the Jews. They struck his head with a reed. They spat on him. They knelt down in homage to him. After mocking him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Um, later text, John's Gospel will tell us that they, they cast lots um, to divide his clothes among them. And um, So where do these details come from? Um, well, just hold that, yeah, keep, keep holding that in mind. They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, he mentions those names with the assumption that we know who they are. We don't. The assumption is that whoever Mark was writing to 
they knew who Alexander and Rufus were. They were probably people active in the movement, and they would have said, oh, Alexander and Rufus, yeah. yeah. Um, and their dad carried the cross, that's Yechis. Yechis is a Yiddish word for, you know, that you're well connected. You have like, uh, you, 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 have, you have lineage, yeah. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of, of the skull. And a they gul, offered a him, gulet is a skull in Hebrew. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them. There's the division of clothes. It's not just in John's Gospel. Casting lots to decide what each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. And the inscription against him read, King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Uh, moving on. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some bystanders heard it, they said, Listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to, to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Um, now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was a son of God. So, okay, hold on. Yeah. That's a powerful story, isn't it? So. And, and a, a graphic and, and gruesome story. It's filled with mocking and beating and derision. Um, and there's this symbolic point at the end. Uh, this, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, do we imagine that's an historic detail that this literally happened? This is a symbol. Um, the curtain was the veil that separated the inner sanctum of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the divine presence dwelt, from the people. And only the, the high priest could pass through the veil once a year. And so for the veil to be torn is to say the division between, between the people and God has been removed. Um, and remember, this is written likely after the temple itself has been destroyed. Um, and so this is, is symbolically saying, we don't need it anymore. The, the separation between God and humanity has been removed. So what, what, I, what we wanted to point out was a lot of these details, where do these details come from? And the first tip-off is this line that Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, anyone familiar with praying the Psalms would immediately go to the first verse of Psalm 22, which is exactly these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and as we move through that Psalm, we see a lot of these details um, in the text actually show up in the Psalm itself. Right, verse 6. Uh, um. Verse uh, 7, I've got. Well, verse 6 and 7. Right. Scorned by others, despised by the people, all who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let God deliver you. Let God rescue you uh, if God delights in you. These right. are the taunts that the people are shouting at Jesus as he's being killed. 
Um, so we see more language being taken from the psalm. That's right. And then uh, later it's, uh, um, they divide my clothes among themselves, casting lots for my garments. That's verse 18. Now that's another detail that we've just been told happened. Um, so what I want to say about that again is to remind you, this is a form of um, Jewish, and I'm sure other, storytelling where you take your sacred scriptures, not just storytelling, but successful preaching. A really great rabbinic preacher is someone who can, and I'm sure this is true in other traditions as well with scriptures, can weave together a sermon using seamlessly weaving in verses from a proof text, in this case, Psalm 22, right? And then you have got a tour de force of uh, storytelling. Um, and that's what's going on here. Also, this is very stylized. The Romans had the day divided into watches, three-hour chunks. And each chapter of this story unfolds at noon, at three, at dusk. At, and so it's, it's a very stylized telling as well. It's thought that this was perhaps designed as a liturgical text so that Christians who are later enacting these events, remembering them ritually... Well, here's what we remember at 6 a.m. Here's what we remember at 9 a.m. Here's what we remember at 12. Here's wow. what we remember at 3. And, and we know that Christians, even today, we, during Holy Week, we do ritual observance of, of these events. And so the text is designed liturgically. It's given us, you know, did these things actually happen in very neat, exact chunks of time? You know, each event <laughs> happened? Or is this giving us the, the, the shape of a liturgical observance wow, uh, or commemoration? Oh, uh, and giving him sour wine to drink, that comes from Psalm 69. So there are other psalms that are brought in here, too. Um, and, of course, the psalm right after 22, of course, is Psalm 23, which is, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So. But we see, again, these details. Um, it's not that the psalms were somehow prophecies, and these events are now literally happening and fulfilling the psalms. It's that the psalms are being used to shape and craft the details of the narrative. Um, does that track? Does that make sense? Sure. So the text continues on. Um, and, and again, <coughs> this story develops over the other Gospels. So here, Jesus dies with the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and he gave a loud cry and breathed his last. Some of the other gospel authors, that wasn't satisfying for them. <laughs> and we have different accounts given. So for Luke, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he dies. And so it's a much more triumphant, sort of peaceful departure, whereas this is a, a cry of forsakenness and a, and, a, and a scream. He cried out and died. Um, Luke, it's much more serene. I commend my spirit into your hands. And John... It's, it's very triumphant. He says, it is finished. Um, and, and, you know, he's finished his work uh, in his dying. Uh, and so, again, we see the tradition developing from this sort of cry of dereliction to a very triumphant um, conclusion to the story. And the centurion. Yes. Uh, so, who's uh, a Roman. A Roman afar is the one who sees the truth. And it reminded me of the story of Rabbi Akiva's martyrdom. Uh, Akiva was martyred by the Romans in the year 130 
five, probably, after supporting yet another rebellion against Rome called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, after which point the Romans decided to level Jerusalem and built a new Roman city on, on its uh, foundations. Um, but Akiva, who is the spiritual hero of much of Jewish storytelling from the second, first and second century, he was a very old man when he was executed, so he had witnessed the destruction of the temple. And in the most famous story about his um, execution, uh, he is serene and um, uh, is... Uh, um, so he's serene while he's, his flesh is being raked and he's being burned at the stake. Uh, the Romans had really, really... They knew how to kill people. So um, uh, there's two versions. One, his students address him and say, are you mad? And then the other, a Roman centurion addresses him and says, are you mad? And he says, no, my whole life I have wanted to fulfill the commandment to love uh, my God with all of my heart and soul and might. And I've done it with all of my heart and all of my might. Now I know how to do it with all of my soul. And he recites, the Lord is one, and he expires. So that's the story of Akiva's martyrdom. And I mention it only because I hear about the centurion, and he appears in that story too, uh, as the one who is like in dialogue. And this is, you know, it's again opening out to the Gentiles. A Gentile gets it. You know, a Gentile goes, ah, oh, this man. Um, and so we know the narrative at this point is opening out in real time in the 70s out to the Gentiles. And so this is sort of, um, one, an inclusive statement of someone who's non-Jewish recognizing Jesus. We move to the burial, and Mark tells us, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council of the Sanhedrin, that's was, the rabbinic council, who was also himself waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he were already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had been dead for some time. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. Um, now this detail, again, is one that... Um, some scholars question or challenge. They go, well, would Rome actually have handed the body over to someone? Um, a large part of, of the point of this crucifixion was to utterly humiliate the person. And generally, their body would be just left to be picked by the birds um, or thrown into a mass grave with other criminals. And why is that utterly humiliating? Because in the Torah, it's clear humans are made in the image of God and you cannot leave a dead body without burial. It's like, that is like such an incredible no-no in Judaism. So to be denied burial is an utter humiliation, disgrace, and worse in terms of this. So, and the Romans, in Crossan's book, uh, he says that one crucified skeleton has been found in the various burial caves around Jerusalem. And the fact that there's only one, and they know because he has a nail through his heel, um, uh, indicates to them that most most crucified victims weren't they were uh, thrown in mass graves, weren't given a burial in a burial cave, which the, was the way to do it. So all honor was removed for, from them by throwing them in a mass grave. They're not getting proper burial. So this is the ultimate um, humiliation. 
And so Prosson and some scholars argue that the likelihood is Jesus' burial was in a mass grave with other criminals. Um, this, who knows? Who knows again? You know, scholars raise these questions. Um, but here we're told that one named Joseph of Arimathea went and asked for the body. Um, what could make this possible is that because Sabbath is approaching, mm -hmm. the Romans would take the bodies down from the crosses um, because the, that would be a huge offense to the Jewish population on, on Sabbath during Passover to leave the corpses up. So <laughs> out of respect to the population... Respect or... or, or um, uh, respect or knowing that they make things worse. If right, they did. this will yeah. make things worse. When bodies were respect. removed. And so, so could it make sense that someone during this um, scenario goes and asks for a body and it's granted? It's possible. It's possible. So both of these cases um, mm -hmm. are, are possible. Uh, so we're told that the body was wrapped in linen cloth and laid in a tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. Um, Joseph of Arimathea then rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where the body was laid. Um, and so this concludes the burial narrative. He's taken and he's entombed. The text continues, when the Sabbath, when Shabbat was over, so now this is Sunday morning, mm -hmm. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome, who's another one of the female disciples mentioned throughout the text, brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They'd been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up... That's like saw, Jacob at the well, uh, by the way, where there's a heavy stone over the well that Jacob rolls off. They saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now that is the original ending of this text. All the earliest manuscripts of Mark's Gospel just end right there. So there are no apparent stories in the early text. There's just the emptiness. They're confronted with this pregnant emptiness. Um, and, and they run away. Um, Christians were uncomfortable with this, this sort of anticlimactic ending, and we see in later manuscripts two different endings are tacked on. I've provided one of them here, the, what's called the shorter ending of Mark. So we see this is added in a number of manuscripts. And all that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter, and afterwards Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Um, a little more satisfying conclusion to the text. The end. The end. The end. And they all lived happily ever after. Um, no, they all then were martyred by Rome, as, as the case for many of these uh, figures. So that uh, is the way Mark initially concludes the text. And I want you to see, I just put, um, because we've talked about the way the text then is embellished and the tradition develops. So I want you to compare this to Matthew's version of the same story. So, to, to just recap, in Mark, 
They go to the tomb. The stone's already moved, right? It's open. And they see what's described as a young man wearing a white robe who gives them this news, right? Now, in Matthew's version, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. Now that's the other detail. In Matthew's version, Pilate has stationed guards at the tomb. And in Mark's version, there are no guards at the tomb. Um, and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. So what's happening between these two texts? Um, one, it's a very simple story. They go, it's already been quietly rolled back, and there's a young man in a white robe who announces the news. Um, a generation. So they, they pitch this to the, to the movie studio who says, no, 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 no. We need some action here. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say right, right. And so Mark adds guards at the tomb, and then he adds an earthquake, and then there's lightning, and then they watch the angel roll the tomb and the stone and sit down on top of it. Um, they're very different accounts, one very simple and sort of quiet, and one very Hollywood, as um, Jonathan is saying. Um, anything you want to jump in here with? Uh, not yet. Keep okay. Going. So, so let's keep going with Paul then. So this is where Mark because we are we are going to talk about uh, how uh, just for and then we'll go back to the text. Okay, what are the different ways you can interpret the spirit of Jesus still being alive in the world through the cultural and religious? Uh, ideas and metaphors that you have. Does it have to be a physical resurrection? Could it be a spiritual appearance? Could it be? And uh, physical resurrection becomes normative. But again, reading Crossan, there's plenty of evidence from other first century and early Christian texts that there were other ways to talk about this other than physical resurrection. So let's actually turn the page. So you have this section called Paul on the Nature of Resurrection. Let's turn past that. So I want you to see... Um, on the back page, there's a passage from Luke and a passage from John. So again, Mark gives us the empty tomb and, and this pregnant emptiness, and they're told, he goes ahead of you, you will see him in Galilee. In Luke, we actually get some stories of appearances. Um, so this is one of them. Now on that same day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. And they go on talking for a while, and then I've picked back up with the text here. 
As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? So this is one of the appearance stories. And significantly, Jesus is unrecognizable to them. So he doesn't appear as Jesus. He appears as a stranger walking on the road. And then they only recognize him in the act of breaking and sharing bread. And they go, oh. So what is this saying to us at a symbolic level? Where are we to find Jesus now that he's gone? We're to find him in the stranger on the road. We're to meet him at table when we break bread. That's where the living Christ is present. Um, this is where we find him. Um, so this is one of the appearance stories. And, it's, and um, significantly, they don't recognize him, and he vanishes. So this is something uh, corporeal, incorporeal, visionary. It's, um, yeah. No, I just found it curious that the name of the village was Emmaus, which Emmaus, yeah. means truth in, in Hebrew. Like no. No, it sounds like it, but it's not the same. Oh, okay. I'm sure we can identify what this village was, but it's not. Uh, scholars have actually said that we don't have any evidence of a village called Emmaus seven miles from Jerusalem. So it's, who, who knows? So I mean, it could Emmaus have existed is, at the time. Yeah, well, anyway, Emmaus is, is a Greek. If there was a Hebrew, if there was a Jewish village, uh, its name would have, I don't know what its name was. But that's a nice sound alike, but not, I don't think true. I thought they were all vying for my version is correct. No, your version. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, let's just look at this next example then. So this is John's Gospel, which is written around maybe 90 or 100, the last Gospel written. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. So what's happened earlier in the text, the disciples have been locked away back in the upper room where they had shared the Last Supper. And Jesus walks through the walls and says, peace be with you. Um, this is after the crucifixion. This is after the crucifixion. And, and Thomas shows up and they tell him this and he says, I don't believe it. And, um, but he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Um, so here, that's doubting Thomas. Just, just figure that out. right? I, that that's doubting Thomas. Yeah. So, so this is a very different kind of appearance. In the first one, he's unrecognizable, and uh, he looks like a stranger. In this one, he's fully recognizable, and he, he bears the wounds that he... Um, had in the crucifixion. Um, the stories like this go on developing. There's a, a second century text called the Acts of John, and in that text, John says um, that sometimes he would appear to us as a child. Sometimes the risen Christ would appear to us as an old man, and sometimes he would appear to us 
uh, as a being of light or with no form at all. And so there's this sense of he keeps appearing to them in whatever ways they need um, and, and however they need to meet him. Um, these meet him in the breaking of bread. Thomas needs to see wounds, and he sees wounds. Um, they're very mysterious stories, and they, none of them can be fit into uh, a neat, tidy package. Of the physical resurrection of the body. Well, some of them are, and some, some of them are embodied. Are so some of them others. are amorphous. He and walks the, through walls. He, right, and the reason I mention it is that... Uh, um, there, there are famous rabbinic midrashim uh, about what about God's appearances to the people in the Bible. Because sometimes God is described as a man of war. Sometimes God is described as uh, the the uh, the waters of life. Sometimes God is described as um, um, uh, a, a, a youth, a youth. Uh, and they go through the whole Torah and pick out every metaphor that describes God. And uh, it's reminding me of that. Mm -hmm. But what scholars point out is that the stories, as we move through the Gospels chronologically, the appearance has become more corporeal. Uh. So in Mark, there's just emptiness, and he goes ahead of you. Um, in Matthew, or, or in Luke here, he appears as the stranger. And by the time of John, he appears with the very wounds. And we have him eating fish with the disciples on the beach. And so there's the question, are, is the telling of, of these appearances becoming more concrete and more literal as time moves on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Isn't there, is it, is it in John that, that, it can't be in John, but in one, in one of them, he's, he talks about, don't touch me, I've not yet ascended. Yeah, he says to, to Mary Magdalene in John's Gospel, she goes, um, he says, Mary, and she, she thinks he's the gardener. And This then, is right at the moment when she goes to the cave. Yeah. Yeah, and, and she says, Rabuni, Rabbi. And she goes to embrace him, and he says, Do not cling to me, um, for I have not yet ascended. And um, it's this beautiful teaching on we want to cling to the old form that we know. We want to we keep our teacher as they always were. I want this form. Um, and he says, Do not cling to me. Um, you have to let go. You can't have it this way forever. Um, it's a profound teaching. And he says um, to the disciples, it is good that I go away. If I do not leave, the Holy Spirit cannot come to you. That if you keep clinging to me, you'll never discover the Spirit within you. You've got to release the form. Um, the well, that's deep. That's good. Wow. Yeah. Miriam? Were Elijah's stories prior to Jesus? Oh, yeah, well yes. before. Elijah's stories are prior to Jesus. Elijah, as we discussed in a much earlier class, in the book of Kings, ascends in a fiery chariot up to heaven. Mm -hmm. And because he doesn't have a, his body is taken up bodily to heaven, a huge amount of important central lore develops about Elijah that he's going to come back. And uh, the, both Jews and Christians know this. And so there are many stories about Elijah. Oh, to this present day, people are writing stories about Elijah because they're beautiful stories. Where are you going to find Elijah? Oh, he's sitting outside the gate binding the wounds of the lepers. You know, oh, he's, Elijah makes a visitation. And uh, they say, who was that? Oh, that was Elijah. He's, he's wandering the earth to see whether we humans are actually ready for the messianic era to begin. There's all kinds of stories like that. Um, uh, so Elijah appears to bodily travel between heaven and earth constantly as someone who appears to be physical but then can disappear. Right. 
and Enoch as well. We're told that Enoch yes. walked with God, and, and, and the legend became that he was translated into heaven, that he never died. Um, like Elijah never let's, died. Let's talk and there are stories bit. of his ascent, his ascension, and all these sort of mystical visions of Enoch ascending through the heavens. And So Enoch makes a one-line appearance in Genesis, but it says he walked with God, and it doesn't say he died, whereas it usually says of the, um, of, in those lineages, and he died. And uh, So Enoch becomes a figure also in lore over the many centuries. So Matthew and I were talking about this idea of the resurrection of the dead um, and where it came from. Because um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, and not to mention many other concepts that, that are widely accepted in the first and second centuries when these texts are being composed, both by the Jews and by the, by the followers, the Jewish followers of Jesus, um, there is no heaven and hell in the Bible. There is just this underworld called Sheol, which is kind of like Hades, I guess. It's the shadow world. It's where the place of the dead. The place of the dead. Everyone goes there. Everybody goes Righteous, there. Righteous, unrighteous, you go to sleep with the ancestors in Sheol. That's all there is in the Bible. That's it. So what happens? Uh, that uh, that um, this, these new ideas of... Um, that there's a place we our souls go. There's an immortality of the soul. That there's even this idea of physical physical resurrection. Where do these ideas take root? And it seems to me, again, in my truly layman knowledge about this at this point, that uh, Hellenism, Alexander the Great, spreads a whole new philosophy, a cosmology, understanding of the universe with Greek wisdom that spreads to the entire. Near East. And so the Jews become Hellenized. Whether they become Hellenized and adopt externally the Greek ways, or whether they become Hellenized and use their Hellenistic, um, uh, th this context to retain their own separateness and individuality, the, the, everything gets redefined. And so if there is an immortal soul, that starts to be part of what people talk about. Because that's what everybody's talking about. It's like I was telling Matthew earlier. It's like, now we talk about the Big Bang. We all just talk about it. The Big Bang, right? 13.7 billion years ago. Well, is that the truth? Is that, you know, like, but it's the way we frame our conversation about it's our the, mythos. It's our current contemporary creation myth. That's right. Our current, and myth not as a lie, but as a way of describing something that defies description. Okay? Um, and so in those days, the, the Jews started to absorb Hellenistic thought and Hellenistic customs. So the example should, uh, that, I was, uh, that I've often used um, is that the Passover Seder, which some of you have heard me talk about before. If you read the, the, if you read the, the, um, the Torah, Passover Seder doesn't exist, right? The way you celebrate Passover, you slaughter the Paschal lamb, you roast it whole, you eat it with bitter herbs and matzah, with your loins girded and your staff in hand, um, so that when your children ask you, what's this all about, you will tell them the story of Passover. And then in the rabbinic era, it turns into this hours-long ritualized <laughs> meal. 
Well, there's, there's, enough, there, there's enough really hard evidence to know that one of the main Greek forms of table fellowship was called the symposium. And the symposium involved uh, reclining, first of all, because you are free. If you're free, you recline. So the rabbis would recline at the Passover table. It involved four cups of wine, which were ceremoniously part of the... Think of a seven-course meal, okay? Uh, it involved hors d'oeuvres, which you dipped. <coughs> and it involved discussion. Uh, that's what a symposium was. We know about this. So the rabbis, Hellenized as they were, took the form, and I think in my study, I think self-consciously and subversively applied it to our own feast. Um, but they may have just done it organically. It may have just emerged, hey, we're going to have our own symposium, but we're going to do it on path. We don't know. My point in sharing all of that with you is that just as we are thoroughly Americanized, like we have, as a Jew, as part of the Jewish community, I have some kind of stylized memories of the shtetl, communal memories of how things were. We're not like that at all anymore. I, we have the stories about the shtetl and about the forest and about the rabbi and about, you know, it, but we're not that anymore at all. We are thoroughly Americanized. Our synagogue has a 501c3 and a board of directors. <laughs> <laughs> right? And yet, we managed to retain the sense of continuity. Uh, but I'm telling you all that again to frame our conversation. So resurrection of the dead... Um, there's, it's so strange that Jews would adopt this idea that there would be a bodily resurrection of the dead. Strange to me. Um, and we know from Josephus that the Sadducees rejected this idea, but the Pharisees embraced it. And there was clear, like... And the Pharisees are the precursors to the rabbis, to rabbinic Judaism. Right, right. So... So this completely counterintuitive idea that there would be an end of history with the resurrection of the dead, uh, at which point everyone would be restored to their physical being, was extant. It was in the air. I have to study more to figure out exactly but it, where it, it was, came from. It was, it's more present in Judaism than in Greek philosophy. In Greek philosophy, they don't believe in a resurrection of the body. They believe in the eternal soul. So it's platonic. So this world right. is just a shadow of the real world. And so those teachings were teachings of the immortality of the soul. Right. So the resurrection of the body is actually very foreign to most Greek philosophy. Interesting. And it's thought that um, the rabbis believed in, or the Pharisees at least, believed in, we believe in a God of history and we believe in a God of justice. And we don't see justice now, so God will bring justice eventually. And so they look to texts like Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones, shall these bones live? And they found, you know, images that suggested God will raise us, God will give life to these bodies. Um, and so there are glimpses, there's not a fully worked out vision of the resurrection of dead in the scriptures, but there are little glimpses that you can weave into that vision. And so the vision develops that there will be justice in the end, and, and there are two different theories. Some of the visions believe there would be only a resurrection of the righteous. Right. The wicked, they just stay dead. Um, others said, no, there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous and a judgment. And then the unrighteous will go to hell and the righteous will go into the bosom of Abraham, into paradise. So you have all these, this is all swirling around. 
And you've got camps saying that's absurd and some saying, no, it, it's what the scriptures say. Um, and, and so into this milieu, we have Paul and the early Christians. They have this experience, and we're going to look at what Paul's experience was, um, this experience of the ongoing life of Jesus. And so what categories do they interpret that through? Paul interprets it through the first century belief, Pharisaic belief, because he was a Pharisee, that there will be a general resurrection. So he already believes as a Pharisee that at the end God will raise everyone. So Paul now has experienced Jesus, so he got, he interprets it within that theological framework and says, therefore Jesus must be the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. So he got raised early. This is what this is what Paul says. The resurrection, we know it's coming. I'm a Pharisee, so I know it's coming. And here's Jesus, so so he's the first fruits of the resurrection. And so Paul says this is the beginning of God's new creation that God's is yet final to be justice, fulfilled. Right, the final, when justice will and, finally be realized. Because uh, if you believe, as I'm just repeating what Matthew said, if you believe this is that the, that the creator of the universe is just, and you live through generation after generation of watching the injustice of what happens to the righteous versus the wicked, then this is a, lo- this is a way you could extend that God's justice will come, and there will be a time when. And, and uh, so, so Paul says the raising of Jesus is God's vindication of the righteous man. Jesus was righteous, and he was, he was um, unjustly. unjustly killed. And so God shows that God is on the side of the righteous by raising Jesus and giving us a preview of the general resurrection that's to come. So this is, so I, I want to turn to Paul's I know Patty text. wanted to say something, oh, yeah. and then we'll turn to Paul's text. things have come up for me in this discussion. Um, I'll just say one thing. The thing that's coming to me most, well, first of all, everybody probably knows I believe everything. <laughs> <laughs> I do, and I, and I love the stories. And one of the things that I wrote to myself was, without the stories, we have nothing. We have a zippy doodle. Nothing. <laughs> and so these stories are precious and beautiful. And I don't even care where they, how they were woven together. I just care that they exist. Understood and, and then, agreed. Then <coughs> I wrote two things. I wrote more than that, but we, I'm thinking, so, uh, so we're taking the stories and we're, we're retranslating them again, mm-hmm. yet again. Which is what every generation has to do, retranslate the story for the times we live in. Right. What I wrote was, are you a Christian, or are you just following tradition? Mm. And then I wrote, are you Jewish, or are you just following tradition? Tradition. So it's a very important anchor to the past. Mm -hmm. We change tradition to suit us. And I, but overriding everything, and in my opinion, all the great religions, and even not so great, um, it's all based on. Which are those, Hank? No. (laughs) 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 It's all based on our very real fear of death. Mm. We're afraid to die because we live these beautiful lives and we know these beautiful people, and at a certain moment, it's going to be gone, and we can't accept that. 
And we have all these religions saying, you'll be raised, you'll be this, you'll be that. And, and we're the only creatures. Animals fight to live, but they don't know they're going to die. But we know we're going to die. And that's the, you know, that's the right. value so of So we're always bones. confronting that's the reality of death. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and one, I have a question. So here's Paul. Paul the visionary. Yeah. And he describes the ritual of the Last Supper. So I, I want to pause. I don't want to go back to the Last Supper right now because we just have a few minutes and I want to look at Paul's words on the resurrection. So just hold that. And if we have time, let's come back to it at the end, okay? No. Okay, really quick. So in terms of timing, Paul wrote maybe 70 Paul, Paul's writing in the 50s and 60s, and Jesus died around 30. So it's 20 okay, so to 30 years later, Paul, Paul is writing. So Paul, here is Paul describing the Last Supper. But he must have based this vision, or not, on the Gospels that came before. No, the no, the Gospels are written after him. Paul. Paul is writing in the 50s and 60s. The Gospels are written in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So, so Paul is, came first. So, oh, Paul, that's my so, so the Gospels would have used the words of Paul, not the other way around. Yeah, that's yeah, all I wanted yeah. to know. Okay. And so, I know what I said, everybody knows. Yeah. Thank you for thank saying you, it. Thank you, thank you, yeah, yeah. So I want to look just quickly at the earliest witness in the New Testament to this resurrection language. So we've looked at Mark, we've looked at Luke and John. What did Paul say? He's the first author writing about this that we have record of. So he says in his letter to the church in Corinth, um, and this is on the first side of the second page. I hand it on to you as the first it's importance. Called, it's called Paul on the Nature of Resurrection. That's the heading. Right. I hand it on to you, these he's writing to, as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to someone untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul uses the word appeared again and again. This word can be also translated manifested, uh, the Greek word. He appeared, he manifested to Peter, to James, to me. Um, and we have the account from some decades later in the Acts of the Apostles that describes Paul's uh, encounter as a blinding light. Um, Paul doesn't make a distinction between the way Jesus appears to him and the way Jesus appears to these others. It's just this word appeared. So what's he talking about? What is the nature of these appearances? So if we continue on in the letter, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as God has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. They are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. He goes on in this way. Then he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body, it is raised a spiritual body. 
if there is a physical body, there's also a spiritual body. Um, and then if you turn the page, uh, he, he concludes, what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So, what does Paul, not Mark or Matthew or Luke or John, what does Paul mean by the resurrection? Whether you believe Paul or not, what does he mean? Um, he's talking about something that sounds very spiritual, right? It's sown, uh, he says it's sown a physical body, and what is sown is not what is raised. It is raised a spiritual body. Um, and then he says that this, this one appeared. He appeared to me. He appeared. Um, so Paul's talking about something that's very vague. It's very amorphous. It's hard to put your finger on. Um, and if you only had Paul and didn't have the Gospels, uh, you wouldn't necessarily have these images of a body with wounds that you could touch or of a risen Jesus eating fish on the beach if you only had this early record. Um, and Paul sort of makes this explicit statement, flesh and blood aren't part of the deal. Um, so wow. I, I just weave this in to, to say the earliest layer seems to be talking about something spiritual and visionary, right? Um, uh, yeah, Matthew, what I'd like... Oh, uh, Diane? I think as a religion develops, it has to have these various aspects because there are different... People are at different stages. There are children who, who just can't get a spiritual idea. Want to bet? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Often okay, the kids get it better than the adults. Well, and then there are adults who, who yeah. need something very concrete, you know, and there yes. are many different kinds of people. So there has to be a story for each kind of person. Yeah. Well, and, and one thing I would point out is that um, there are stories like this across religious traditions, wild stories of dead spiritual masters appearing to their students. You can go read Hindu stories. The Hindu guru died, and then he appeared to his students. He manifested to them. He spoke to them. And you there go was to wine the, involved. And there was wine involved. You, you, can, you can go over to the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. In Tibetan Buddhism, there are accounts as recent as the 30s, 40s, 50s recording stories of Tibetan Buddhist masters who achieve what in Dzogchen is called the rainbow body. And it's these great enlightened masters that when they know death is approaching, they enter into deep meditation. And the tradition says they just dissolve their body back into life. It's, it's said that the physical body self-liberates and transforms itself back into spirit. And so no body is left. You see these stories across traditions. And so the idea that Jesus' body turned back into light and then he appeared to his students... When you look at that across world traditions, it's, it's not so strange a claim, actually. So we all have stories, too. Right. Many of us right. of visitations yeah. by deceased people we loved. Right. right? I mean, we, can, we could spend the rest of, we could spend days, each of us telling, I had this amazing experience. Right. So it's not just a, a codified religion, but it's part of human experience. The question is, what, how you then make sense of it right. based on your view of how the world works and how the right. cosmos works. Uh, Karen, what did you want to add? And then I want to give Matthew the last word here. I want to ask yeah. him something. I'm going to go back to the Seder, actually, and the yeah. cup of Elijah. So we do actually ritualize oh, right, right. this visitation yes. of this being that's going to be... If you're not familiar with this, 
In a Seder, we always leave a cup of wine uh, full on the table for Elijah. Who, and then during one part of the Seder, we open the door for Elijah. So that's right. That's good to remember. Yeah, we all wrestle with that. Is Elijah yeah. coming? Who did drink the wine when we get up the next morning? Right, right. It's, it's, sort of, it's sort of a Jewish Santa and cookies tradition for the kids also. And, uh, and, and I remember, this is going to date me, but whenever we were having our Seder, the paper boy would knock on the door and we would say, oh, it's Elijah. <laughs> To get this. so anyway, but as, as Jonathan says, like you know, when my father died, my mother's sister says that he appeared to her. Um, you know, my grandmother, when her mother died when she was a girl, she said my mother appeared to me and came and sat on my bed and told me it was going to be okay, and then she disappeared. Like these stories, uh, cut not just across traditions but across like the experiences Humanity. of the people in this room, and um, and so for Paul to say when Rabbi Jesus was executed and buried then he appeared to Peter and then he appeared to me and he appeared like we live in a weird universe where these kinds of things apparently happen and Paul then has to theologize that experience okay what does it mean that he appeared to me and he's a Pharisee in the first century who's expecting the resurrection of the dead to come so he goes well how does this fit what well, must be that he's the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead um, because that's the theological worldview he has to interpret the experience within. We would have that experience and interpret it through a different theological worldview. Um, I but think you'd interpret it psychologically as well. You might interpret it psychologically, you exactly. You miss this person so much that you, you almost visualize him. Mm -hmm. Right, that's there, a contemporary interpretation of the experience. And that's within a contemporary reductionist, scientistic worldview. Mm -hmm. We tend to <coughs> interpret things only as psychological and internal you know, because mm -hmm. we've denied the reality of spirit we've denied that we live in a world with infinite dimensions and so we go well it must just be an adjustment in your brain well maybe that's a part of it but maybe there's more to it maybe we live in a universe that's vaster and more mysterious than we think um, certainly the people who wrote these texts believe they lived in that universe uh, so I, I don't want to shut down any possibilities uh, around around this kind of thing. Right, I'm a happy agnostic, yeah. <laughs> since I don't actually know. No, right, right, exactly. Well, there's a reason why we go to church and go to synagogue. We're right. not here for history. Right, and, and, and we're also not here just for the Society of Ethical Culture, because we right. could do that, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, so, aren't the Jews waiting for the Messiah? Uh, yeah, hey, um, so it's, it's time. <laughs> I, I want to share, so Matthew, two people sent me very humorous little quotes. One was, um, who said this to me? Um, uh, it said, um, it was a story from church where the little boy asked, uh, how many of these wafers do I need to eat before I've eaten the whole Jesus? And then someone else just told me, you know how you make holy water? You boil the hell out of it. And, uh, <laughs> and, and then there's the other one, you know how Moses makes his coffee. He brews it. Yeah. 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 Got it. Got it. Okay. So I, I want to take one more. I want to take. I want to take one more minute to ask Matthew to just speak uh, now outside. You know, to uh, what the resurrection means to you or how sure. you. Want. I want to put that in that context also. So, so this 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 becomes the central heart of the Christian mysteries. This passage through death and resurrection. It's the very heart of the Christian year. 
Like the whole year builds up to the celebration of Holy Week, the crucifixion of Jesus, and then the resurrection. And it's understood that this is a model of the spiritual process that we all go through. That death and resurrection is something that we pass through on an internal level. Um, and so it's said in the Christian mystical tradition that everything Jesus lives out in time and history, we have to live out in the ground of our soul. Um, Paul makes this a participatory mystery. He says um, that we have to be crucified with Christ, um, that, that he sees his own ego being crucified and then himself being raised. And he says, it is no longer I, my ego, that lives, but Christ who lives in me. And so this whole dying and rising becomes a mystical process of inner transformation. And so on one level, it points to that, to this process of transformation that we follow Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, and we die with him, and we're raised into a new kind of life. Um, and of course, in our tradition, we go through that process again and again. Every year, we're making this journey of death and resurrection um, and patterning it, patterning it into our souls. Yeah. Um, so that's one part of it. It's, it's, a, it's a vision of the inner journey. Um, and, and then it's also, for me, just a pointer to the mystery, the, the mysterious universe that we live in. Um, and that, that the Jesus movement, whatever Jesus gave birth to, um, as St. Paul says, death could not contain him. Like this, this movement for justice, for inclusion, for the kingdom of God, death couldn't put an end to that movement. That movement continued. And so in one deep sense, he's truly risen in his followers. That's his continuing body. We, we eat and drink his blood to remember him. That is to, to become his life, to continue his life and his vision. Um, and so, so it's all something very mystical and participatory. Um, I didn't think of words to sum up really clearly uh, uh, here, but that was, that was beautiful. beautiful. That was beautiful. We can leave it at. I, thank you. I just wanted to give that, uh, you know, to to put that around that. And so we'll meet again in two weeks, and it'll be a chance for for reflection uh, for us who've been on this uh, this. Uh, following this course the last night. Right, and, and what, what's changed in all of us? Like, how have our understandings of Judaism changed, our understandings of Christianity or Jesus changed? How have we changed? And what might we want to um, uh, dream of uh, studying together as this experiment continues? And But also, we'll be happy to take questions that have yeah, been yeah, lingering yeah. for you. And Absolutely. So we'll see what happens, just like... Every time. In two weeks. No, a four hour class. A four hour class. <laughs> Just a two hour class. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.